As early as 1943, archaeologists began investigating Holocaust sites for a variety of reasons, including the Nazis and the Soviets. What does it mean to excavate these places? Today's guest has done exactly that in a variety of locations, including Treblinka and Alderney in the Channel Islands. We had a really great conversation about everything from methodology to ethics and how we both figuratively and literally excavate the past as it relates to the Holocaust. I know you'll find this conversation with Caroline Sturdy Coles as thought-provoking as I did. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome back to the Holocaust History Podcast. I'm your host, Waitman Bourne. Um, and today I'm really excited to talk about a topic that um, is probably something that you may not have heard a lot about, but that I think is really important and is becoming even more important as technology advances. And that's um, archaeology of the Holocaust. And I have with me um, probably the best person to talk about that, who is uh, Professor Caroline Sturdy Coles. Um, Welcome, Caroline. How are you doing? Thank you. Hi, Waitman. Yeah, I'm doing good. Thank you. Are you? I, I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm, I'm excited to hear. Uh, you know, even though um, I'm the host, I, I really would. I'm, I'm looking forward to just talking about this because I feel like there's so many really interesting um, stories and insights to come out of this. Um, so, can you tell us really quickly before we get started, um, just a brief introduction? Tell us about yourself and and how you got into Holocaust archaeology. Sure. Yeah. So um, I'm currently a professor of conflict archaeology and genocide investigation at Staffordshire University. And I'm also the director of the Centre of Archaeology here. And I oversee um, a team of interdisciplinary experts um, from archaeology, history, forensic investigation, um, even fine art, um, lots of different people from different areas who have a shared interest, really, in um, the archaeology of the Holocaust um, and um, of genocides in the 20th and 21st centuries. So I've been working in this area now for um, more than 15 years. Um, and um, actually probably even going back, and be, I suppose it goes back 20 years really um, to my days at university because I met um, a professor there called uh, Professor John Hunter who had been pioneering the discipline of forensic archaeology which is the search for uh, missing persons and other buried remains using archaeological techniques. And he'd been working in Bosnia, trying to find the remains of the victims of genocide and also in other places like Kosovo and Iraq. And I was just really inspired, actually, that you could use archaeological methods to try and help provide answers for families, really, who had for, in many cases, decades, um, not knowing what happened to their loved ones and so I, I asked John and, and a, another good colleague Barry Simpson uh, who was an ex-police officer if I could join them on some forensic casework and they they actually took me along um, you know as an undergraduate um, I was very very fortunate that they took me along on on some cases which included a review of the Moore's murders cases which was quite was quite well-known case here in the UK um, and then after after I'd worked on a lot of those kind of cold cases as we call them 
Um, I decided to pair that with my interest in the Holocaust, which I'd always had, um, and trying to look into see whether anybody had actually done any archaeology in that context. And I very quickly realized that they had, um, but that they tried to dig and that, that that didn't always fit very well with the religious um, requirements of searching, for example, for Jewish victims. And so I decided that, that a better methodology was really needed. Um, and so I, that, that, that's really where I started booking work on that as part of my master's and my PhD. Yeah, and we're definitely, we'll, we'll talk about some of those techniques, I think, as we're, as we're moving forward. Um, it's really it, it's really interesting to hear, because I just remembered um, my only sort of foray into this um, many, many moons ago when I was uh, when I was in Iraq in 2003, we were in um, Kurdistan and we were on uh, the, he- the squadron headquarters was on a hill um, outside this town of Kanakin on the border with Iran. And um, we noticed after we'd been there for a very short period of time that uh, the, the, the locals started coming out with like earth movers and bulldozers and stuff to where to literally where we are the hill where we were at and it turned out that um that had been a site where saddam had murdered the kurds and had buried the bodies and we literally had a i have photographs of this we had for a couple days we had a um, cid a criminal investigations um detachment basically the army military police people came out and did like an excavation Mm-hmm. And uncovered bodies, covered bones, and like you know, people with their hands tied behind their back and things like this. Um, it's I don't know I, that just popped in my head, but I, I was you know thinking about um, this idea of digging and not digging, and and these people really it's, it's, it was incredibly powerful because these people had known for you know twenty twenty years where their loved ones were buried, but they actually weren't able to to do anything about it until. You know, until Saddam was gone. Uh, yeah, not necessarily related to anything we're talking about today, but it, it, it just popped into my head as something that that I thought was a, an interesting way of um, contextualizing this. Um, sure. Historically, though, so let's talk about the history, um, because as you say, you're not the first person to to think about doing archaeology archaeological investigations. Um, what's the history? What's the background of Holocaust archaeology from, I guess, really 1944 to present? Yeah, so it's actually got a really long history, although, of course, it wasn't called that um, back then. But I mean, all the techniques that we use as forensic archaeologists and also, also anthropologists who are more con- concerned with the body you know, itself um, stem from investigations that emerged during and after the Holocaust, because obviously... In, particularly in 1943, when the bodies of Polish soldiers were discovered at Katyn, um, the, the, you know, the authorities were faced with this unprecedented question, how do you find and then recover and then hopefully, in some cases, identify the remains of victims of genocide? Because those victims, um, and, and conflict, of course, as well, um, in terms of, of military um, military war crimes or crimes against humanity but that that was something they never faced before on that scale and so um you had doctors lawyers medical investigators who very quickly had to get together and figure out how to deal with this issue um and 
particularly from 1944 when um, the Red Army started to move into um, former areas occupied by the Nazis and begin their own investigations, you see a huge wave of forensic uh, processes emerging. And so actually, if you look back at the investigations from Katyn in 1943 or... Which were actually done by the Nazis, right? Which is... Yeah, it's already kind of a really interesting historical moment there, right? Sure, yeah. I mean, there were teams from from Germany, there were teams from Russia, who obviously late only decades later admitted that they were the ones who have actually carried out the crimes. Um, and we had there were British uh, pathologists and and pathologists from from various other countries who were involved in those investigations, who then went on to develop what we now use as the kind of benchmark standards in, for example, projectile analysis um, for bullet wounds. And they used aerial photography um, for the first time to identify disturbances caused by graves. And many of them also looked at decomposition environments in mass grave settings to see if they could estimate the post-mortem interval, how long somebody had had been um, buried since the moment that they were killed. So this was like really fundamental. Um, and so a lot of Soviet scientists in particular, um, you know, can be attributed with with the, a lot of these developments that um, emerged and, and, as I say, are still very much embedded um, in, in um, investigations today. But really, the focus of those investigations was often to prove that a crime happened. So whereas today we have a kind of dual process where usually there's a legal element to it in terms of trying to prosecute offenders um and then there's the humanitarian side where you try and identify victims back then the legal side really you know was the one that most of the attention was focused on and these graves you know when you read the reports it sometimes it looks quite callous because it it looks like you know we found a grave we can prove a crime happened there we go. You know, we've done our job now. Um, and they don't they didn't necessarily try and identify individuals. And of course, that was very difficult. And it's easy to be critical now because we have DNA technologies and, you know, and, and we have um, all the methods that can help us. But um, obviously, there were things they could have done back then as well to identify individuals. But that wasn't their focus. Um, it was very much on, as I say, gathering evidence for the conviction of perpetrators. Well, I suspect there's also a, a scale issue, too where yeah. you have, you know, all across, as the Soviets are reconquering so Soviet territory, I mean, literally every town, every village essentially has a mass grave site, and you just don't sure. have enough forensic staff to, even if they wanted to sort of do a detailed analysis. No, exactly. Um, I mean, so they tended to excavate, you know, partially. Um, they tended to carry out a sample of autopsies to sort of say, you know, these are the types of injuries people sustained, um, or this is how many bodies we estimate would be in this grave. And then they tended to multiply that based on the number of graves that they found. Um, and yeah, I mean, obviously, it's a challenge today. We have mass disaster, um, mass death investigation protocols in the world today. And we we know that it's still not a perfect system and that people are not even searched for in many cases. And if they're found, then it's not always possible to identify them. So, um, it, as I say, it was it was absolutely unprecedented and it, and it sowed the seeds for for major developments that, that came later. Um, but it wasn't until much later that we actually had like Holocaust archaeology. Yes, I mean, I think that's that's the next sort of stage, right? Is I mean, what we're talking about now is the Soviet Extraordinary State Commission. Um, for the listeners that aren't aren't familiar, it was a 
a Soviet state government organization whose job was to um, essentially document every crime that the Nazis committed on Soviet soil. Everything from, you know, theft of cattle to mass graves and these kinds of things. Um, and so, as Caroline's pointed out, right, it, it has a it has a political objective as well, um, which which doesn't which doesn't it doesn't mean it's propaganda either, because I've used some of these reports as well. And, and particularly at the lower if you get the first version, like the local report, they're actually quite, quite good and often have witness testimony and survivor testimony. Um, but they also are designed to show the world and everybody else that the Nazis committed all these crimes. Um, so I, I get my, my sense as a, as a non-expert in this area is that then there's something different that happens, say, from the 50s on. Uh, you know, it, it seems like there's much less investigation in this interim period. Um, what, what happens next? What happens? And, of course, obviously, we're also thinking we have to think geographically, too, because there are Holocaust sites, as we'll talk about, you know, on the Channel Islands and in Germany and in Poland. And so it's not just occupied Soviet Union, but what happens in sort of the this middle period before, if we can think about perhaps a renaissance of, or the birth of specifically Holocaust archaeology, what happens in the meantime? Yeah, so as you quite rightly point out, there's all these different commissions that were set up, um, which were, were usually operating um, variably from sort of 1944 um, until about 1948. Some went into the early 50s. Um, but I think Again, scale, uh, money, time, resources, um, a desire to obviously try and move on and create a new Europe, you know, led to kind of a, a dwindling level, I guess, of enthusiasm um, in investigating some of these these crimes. I think also some kind of sometimes some issues about who should be investigating. So should it be the country that the victims came from um, who initiated the investigations or should it be the country where the crimes took place? And so you get this kind of back and forth and political um, tittle-tattle about who, who's responsible for these victims. Um, and then also in this sort of this intervening period early in the early 50s, there's a fairly um, important um, series of events that takes place. So there was a French commission who were tasked with investigating crimes against French citizens, and they travelled across, mostly across Germany, um, to try and locate mass graves in which French citizens were buried, which obviously is, is highly problematic because, you know, they weren't necessarily concerned with all the victims, but rather, the, you know, how do, how do you therefore determine if, you're not, if it's not possible to identify which bodies were French victims? So they, they went and they did lots of investigations, but they tried to do work um, at Bergen-Belsen in the early 50s. And they wanted to excavate some of the mass graves to recover bodies and return them to France. And this caused a huge outcry. And um, what what basically happened is that the Jewish community rallied against the commission to say that their methods, which, as I say, centred on excavation, uh, disrespected Jewish law, which basically stipulates that apart from in some exceptional circumstances, that bodies buried in a grave shouldn't be disturbed. Um, and the very basic, this is very oversimplification, but the, the reason for that is that Jewish people believe that the body is tied to the soul and the earth and the body are tied to each other when a body becomes buried. So if you disturb the earth, you disturb the body and therefore the soul of the person. And, and I'm so, assuming that the, the exceptions are, you know, 
if, if we're talking in a modern context of like a modern crime and some someone is murdered, I mean, you can invest, you can you can excavate and do forensic in order to capture the person who's responsible. Yeah, so that's an interesting point because actually, of course, Jewish law goes back, you know, to such a time when when these kind of laws didn't exist. So actually, you know, it, it, taken in its its kind of um, you know raw form, as it were. Th- this applies, these these rules about non-disturbance apply even if someone's been buried in an illegal grave, even if somebody's been murdered. However, the rule of law usually overrides religious law um, in almost all circumstances. And therefore, in a modern context, if, if a crime is committed, then obviously the state rules that a forensic investigation has to take place. And in different countries, the rules are very different um, with regards to the Holocaust as well because some countries see the Holocaust sites as archaeological sites, some see them as, as you know, still forensic um, um, and more contemporary. And um, also it differs between different rabbinical, um, you know, views on the interpretation of Jewish law. So it's quite complex. But in the 50s, you know, the, 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 the rabbinical authorities, um, you know, objected to these excavations, even though the purpose was to uncover crimes that had taken place. And therefore, this commission's activities, you know, dwindled. And I think, obviously, um, that almost, you know, sets a precedent then for um, the non-disturbance of mass graves. And, and a lot of this, the work of those commissions, um, as I say, started to started to slow down anyway. Um, and therefore, you know, I think this was this was sort of um, the final sort of sticking point really with with their work and therefore a lot of them closed down and moved on to other things and so then when can we think about i guess holocaust archaeology as a discipline coming coming about i mean is there something that happens in the 60s 70s 80s i mean when do we start to see um maybe perhaps a, a shift from a juridical sort of legal forensic criminology perspective to more of a historical archaeological if if that's even fair to say i don't know if it's fair to say that that even happened but yeah yeah definitely i mean actually it's interesting you mentioned um the example of iraq with the families searching for the remains of their victims um and in that intervening period um you know obviously a lot of the the onus of of finding sites missing persons you know, fell to the families who was who still wanted to know, even if the authorities had kind of lost interest in that. Um, and that didn't just apply to grave sites, but also, of course, the sites of the camps um, and the ghettos and sites associated with Nazi persecution. And so in the 70s, actually, you get an organisation that emerged in, um, um, well, it's, a, it's a sort of a, an activist group, if you like, emerged in uh, Berlin, who actually excavated one of the former SS headquarters, which we now know as the Topography of Terror Museum. Mm, um, right, yeah. And these were, you know, they weren't archaeologists, but they they initiated what probably can be seen as the kind of first, um, you know, community archaeology program, if you like, of the Holocaust, because they started to do those excavations because they felt that physical proof was often being overlooked and distorted. Um, and as buildings, of course, were demolished and, you know, the city was changing the Nazi past was being erased and they really felt like, you know, we need to bring this to light. Um, and if you go to the Topography of Terror Museum in Berlin today, you can still see the cells um, that they excavated, um, which was where people, of course, were tortured. 
Um, and so that that really like sort of sparked a lot of ideas. But I think it's the 1980s, really, where you see archaeologists and heritage professionals really starting to adopt archaeological methodologies and that acceptance that archaeology didn't have to just be about the ancient past. Um, and mm. so it's really the excavations in Helmno, um, which was a, a death camp uh, situated in Nazi-occupied Poland, where the, where the gas vans were used to murder um, hundreds of thousands of people. Um, and that really, that, that really was initiated by the museum so that they could um, actually generate objects to be shown in the museum um, and so that they could really show something on the site, you know, as, as, as they were forefronting the place of mass murder as the important physical evidence of the crimes committed. So um, the staff there, um, some of whom had archaeological training, initiated a large programme of excavations which yielded many objects, many new building foundations that were previously covered by earth. Um, and then that really sparked then a wave of other archaeologists to get involved in excavations at the other death camps thereafter. Yeah, I mean, I think you you raise a really important point, I think, which is also from the public history perspective, um, when one is designing a museum exhibit, uh, we can't get around the fact that it's just way more powerful to have an image, uh, to have an image or a, a, an object, right? Mm -hmm. um, I went to, I took some friends um, to Sobibor um, last summer. And their their museum is amazing, by the way, for, for listeners, if you ever get a chance, they have an, a a really amazing museum and I, they were able to do some of these excavations because they built a new museum and in the process of of you know building a, a new foundations for the building etc cetera, etc cetera, um, i think it gave them a good excuse to do archaeology um you know to to dig the site because they had to dig it anyway and you know they have amazing objects that they've found in there so i mean i think there's something there's something interesting about the desire for sort of materiality um, from a public history perspective. Sure. So Caroline, tell us, um, we have kind of some background now. Uh, I guess two things. The first is it seems like the, there's, also, there's a technological revolution here too that, that makes this possible or makes things possible that perhaps weren't possible in the 70s and 80s right so maybe if you could tell us a little about maybe what are the what are the methods that one uses in light of of the constraints that we work under um regarding respect for the dead and things like that sure yeah so um i mean actually just to go back to your first question in terms of how i got into this actually one of the major things that in, you know really inspired me to develop a methodology for approaching sites of the holocaust in the way that i do was the fact that there were some excavations in belgets in the 1990s um, and again there were excavations and again the jewish community protested against this and so by the middle of the 90s really archaeology and the holocaust like didn't seem like that they could fit together in any way because archaeology has always been so centered on excavation um, however you know in the late 90s 2000s and and, and onwards Archaeology as a discipline really grew um, and archaeology is an area that like always borrows techniques from other fields. So, you know, a lot of the survey methods that we use, a lot of the underground um, geophysical methods that, that detect buried remains come from engineering or mining or, you know, other other fields. 
And so that had all grown up in the 70s and 80s in other fields. And then archaeology really started to adopt those methods in the in the 1990s. And so actually this offered a real opportunity to be able to actually reconsider the archaeology of the Holocaust without necessarily having to dig or being able to at least target where to dig more appropriately to either avoid mass graves if Jewish victims were present um, or to just, you know, obviously find buildings and, and other traces of, of um, the camps and the ghettos that had been lost over time. And so the methodology that I use, it tends to start with traditional desk-based research. Um, I spend a lot of time in archives, um, just as, you know, I consider myself to be a historian and an archaeologist because I spend a lot of time going through um, witness testimony, um, German documents, forensic reports, as we've mentioned, um, also photographs, maps, plans, you know, sketches that were drawn by witnesses um, and collating all of that together and then starting to build like a visual record. So if there are if there are aerial photography, um, you know, images or ground based photography, then um, that's fundamental because that helps us to identify often how sites evolved over time and if any disturbance can be seen in post-war imagery for example that might indicate the presence of buried remains or wartime imagery as well Um, and then moving kind of into the field we've obviously seen huge advances in gps technology um, which allows us to record the position of traces that we see but it also enables us to create topographic very detailed topographic models of the landscape. Um, and what this can do is show really subtle changes of depression, you know, of, of elevation, which may indicate the presence of a buried foundation um, or a grave. Because when bodies decompose in a grave, the ground tends to sink um, and therefore you see an actual topographic change. Um, and then we've also seen things like, obviously, um, drone technology is really developing. So the ability to take, you know, thousands of photographs from the air and stitch them together into 3D models. Um, another technique called LIDAR, um, which essentially pulses out thousands of laser pulses, hits the ground, and then me- and then you measure the distance between the aircraft or the drone and the ground. And again, that gives you this t- detailed topographic model. Um, and so I've identified many graves, many building foundations using that technology. Um, and so that's been like really, really fundamental, particularly for forested areas, because you can strip away the tree layer and get a kind of bare earth model. So you see the ground in a way that it probably hasn't been seen since the Second World War in some cases, if those trees have been planted since. So that's been that's been really fundamental. Um, and then moving beneath the grounds, obviously, geophysical technologies have enabled us to then sort of start to see the things that we can't see with the naked eye um, and the things that ordinarily you would have to excavate in order to find. And although they're not x-ray machines, they can't like, you know, they can't show you exactly what is beneath the ground. They can show you what we call anomalies. They can show you that there's a rectangular feature that measures 30 by 10 meters. And when you compare that to aerial images, obviously you can make an interpretation about whether that might be a building foundation um, or in other cases, mass graves. So all of this combined, um, and you layer all this data together, you know, and you validate one source against another, builds up a really detailed picture. Um, and it also allows you essentially as well to cover a much bigger area than you would, of course, be able to do with excavation. So that's really transformed the way that we look at Holocaust landscapes 
rather than just features within Holocaust landscapes. Yeah, there was a, I, I mentioned you before we started recording um, this potential project. And uh, one of the presenters at the seminar mentioned even an ability, and I'm trying to remember now what the, what the name of the technology was, but basically they could even begin to identify anomalies of iron from blood in the soil uh, or some kind of, some kind of chemical, chemical radiological analysis. Is that, does that make sense? Is that something that actually exists? Am I, am I describing that correctly? Um, well, I mean, if you do soil sampling, then of course you, yeah, you can start to identify all sorts of different, um, you know, different particles that are present in the soil. You could identify whether there's uh, lipids in the soil, which can be sometimes there because of decomposition. Um, you can detect, you know, in some cases blood. Um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to profess to be, um, you know, a, a scientist to know the micro level detail, but certainly, you know, I know that, that if you, if you are taking samples, um, then you can, um, you can detect all sorts of, um, of different trace elements that may indicate certain types of buried remains. Again, that's also, obviously slightly evasive, but I mean, it's, yeah. it's permissible in some areas, you know, away from grapes. And there's also, example. right. Um, even just the, the, the types of plant life, um, can indicate this potentially, you know, sites for further investigation. Is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's something that really kind of grew up in the um, in this sort of I guess, I guess like again nineties um, this area of, of study called forensic taphonomy, and um, and that basically um, enables you to evaluate you know plant growth which sometimes can indicate like the, the addition of chemical elements in the soil that makes certain types of plant grow, plants grow better, or maybe um, might make um, just the plants that are already there grow more because the soil is suddenly nutrient rich. Um, and then in other cases, the burial of bodies will, um, you know, deprive uh, plant life of, of the nutrients that they need, particularly if bodies are covered up for example. So you'll get reduced vegetation growth. And so all those things are visible in aerial photography um, as well. You can you can see obviously that kind of ground disturbance. Um, and also when you're walking on the ground, a lot of what I do is kind of mapping different vegetation types because often where you see nettles, for example, um, that, that can be as a result of there being um, human remains present. And that's been kind of a well-tested um, methodology that's used it by forensic archaeologists in individual uh, missing persons cases around the world, as well as obviously a mass mass death investigation. Cool, cool. So, I mean, let's well, let's let's get into your work, right? Because you've you've, I mean, one of the reasons that it's so great to have you on here is because you have so much experience in this. Um, tell us about like let's start with Treblinka. Uh, tell us about your your work at Treblinka because you know you've done some of the pioneering archaeological research there. Um, you know what. How, how did you get into that particular um, site and, you know, what what did you do and then, you know, what did you find? Yeah, so I started working at Treblinka um, as part of my um, master's course, actually. I was, I was going back to 2007, 2008 now. Um, and so that, that, that my dissertation at that point proposed this idea that you could use these non-invasive archaeological methods 
as a way of um, meeting the needs of Jewish law with regards to the burials. But also, as I say, kind of giving this bigger approach to be able to identify um, and categorise sites at a much a much larger scale than, than had previously been possible. And um, then for my PhD, I used I I, um, I wanted to examine um, sites where we could we could try and see if this methodology would really work. Um, and the first time I ever went to Treblinka, I was just really shocked by the fact that you know this is this is the second largest killing site of the Holocaust, um, but it's not like Auschwitz-Birkenau. There aren't surviving buildings that are obvious to see in the extermination camp area. There's a um, a really powerful memorial which contains 17,000 stones commemorating the towns and villages from which people came, but it it's in the middle of a forest and it's you know it's you know quite frankly with the right weather it's really like a beautiful forest environment um, and you would have no idea what happened there um, and so I really felt that it could it was impossible that a site like that I mean there were, there's between eight hundred thousand and, and a million people who are known to have been killed at Treblinka. And it's impossible that all the traces of that crime could have been erased. But that was the narrative that had been built up around the site, that the Nazis had managed to destroy everything. Um, And they'd cremated all the bodies and there was no buildings because they demolished them in in the summer of 1943. Um, So I really felt like if, you know, if you could show that this methodology worked on a site where the Nazis had gone to such lengths to hide their crimes... Then its potential at you know at sites where that hadn't necessarily happened to the same extent was was obviously even greater. Um, so I guess I probably started with the hardest place um, that, that you could possibly um, have done that. But I, I also felt it was huge injustice that that site hadn't been examined and that those victims' stories had been eradicated because of this narrative that everything had been destroyed. Um, so when I first did fieldwork there in two thousand and ten. Um, we we used um, many of the methods I've just mentioned, so particularly survey technologies. We mapped the plant life around the camp. Um, we looked at where the boundaries of the camp might have been. Um, and actually, that was looking at the way that the, the trees grew and the, and the plants grew. We And comparing to aerial imagery, we could see that the boundary that was currently marked by memorial stones was actually in the wrong place. Um, Mm. And the the northern boundary of the camp actually needed to be about 50 metres further north, which obviously then had implications for where everything else in the camp probably was. Um, And one of the big questions, of course, was where were the gas chambers? Because they'd been knocked down, blown up, you know, demolished. Um, And everybody thought that they were under this huge megalith that forms part of the, the memorial. And that's still what tour guides tell people, um, even even now, um, courtesy of, of, of Claude Landsman's Shoah film, where he said that in the, <laughs> in right. the film. Um, so um, we, uh, we, we really wanted to kind of, you know, identify where all the different structures within the camp were, but particularly to find the gas chambers. So we used ground penetrating radar, um, we used another method called um, resistance survey, which looks at electrical impulses that pass through the ground. Um, and we combined all that with the archival research and, and maps and aerial imagery. And that enabled us really to, to pinpoint where we thought the gas chambers were likely to be, um, both the old gas chambers, the very first ones that were built, and the newer gas chambers. Um, and also to identify where the mass graves were most likely located 
And so that enabled us really to build up a really detailed picture of the, the death camp area. Um, and then in the reception camp, we identified where some of the structures were, including the Lazarus, which was a fake field hospital behind which people were shot into a pit. Um, and again, even though the, the one of the commissions after the war, the Central Commission had looked into that, it wasn't really known where where those sites were. So um, so that was that was 2010. And then and then in 2013, um, we were given permission to then carry out some excavations in the area of the gas chambers to confirm that that's what they actually were. Um, and the reason that we were allowed to do that was because we'd already identified where the mass graves were. So therefore it was, you know, we knew we weren't going to be digging in those areas. We didn't seek to dig in those areas. Um, but the museum um, felt that it was really important that we validated where the gas chambers were. Um, and similar to Helm No, similar to Belgets, they didn't have many objects from the camp at all. And they also wanted to be able to show visitors to the site more about what happened. So they were they were very keen on those excavations. And we had permission from the chief rabbi of Poland to carry them out because we could say safely that we'd excluded the areas of mass graves. Yeah, so a quick question, because it's something that I've always been curious about as well. You know, the the extent to which um, the prohibition on, on ex exhumation or excavation is specific to where it's most likely you know, that you would find human remains versus the possibility that there might potentially be someone buried there. I mean, I, I think I, I think about Birkenau, right, um, and mm -hmm. Auschwitz too, which is, uh, you know, considered, it's considered a cemetery, right? If you're, if you're an observant Jew, then, you know, it's basically a cemetery space, yeah. the whole, the whole thing, right? Um, but of course, you know, there most likely aren't bodies buried in the vicinity of the barracks and things like that. Um, but it seems like that, that often the prohibition for ex excavation covers sort of is a blanket thing. Is that, I mean, can you make the argument that, you know, it's okay to dig even though we're within the boundaries of the camp, it's okay to, to sort of do forensic or scholarly archeological digs in places that aren't, likely to have actual human remains even though you know they are clearly still the site of human suffering and and that kind of thing yeah i mean that raises a lot of other issues that we had to sort of grapple with and and you know i'm very fortunate to to have the chief rabbi of poland um and his colleagues um who um map mass graves across the whole of poland to give give me lots of advice um on that and 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 nothing was done without you know their kind of collaboration and, and their final permission um and this it raised a really interesting point when we when we obviously discussed whether to excavate the gas chambers because obviously we'd been told you know you can't excavate you can't excavate where the mass graves are we could rule out mass graves being located there um, but I still was unsure whether or not it was appropriate or um, or whether it be permitted to do excavations for the reasons you've just said um, however the chief rabbi actually um, you know in those conversations raised an interesting point that. You know, if we were to find scattered remains in Treblinka, which, you know, is entirely possible given the fact that the Nazis spread the remains um, across the site, we know that, um, then actually those remains were not buried in a grave and therefore they should be recovered and and buried in one. Um, mm, okay. Yeah. So actually at a site like Treblinka, you know, where, where like the whole landscape is, is actually scattered, um, you know, the, 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 
it's it's an interesting conundrum, you know, about what happens to those remains because actually people are walking over those areas every day without knowing that they're walking over remains and those those bones are not buried in a grave. So the chief rabbi said, you know, scattered bones should be buried in a grave, you know, and so therefore actually when we did find remains in the course of those gas chamber excavations, which were, you know, small fragments, um, also we found teeth and dentures. His advice um, then was that a, a representative from the commission would come and then we would bury them um, in a grave mm. in an area that we felt wouldn't contain human remains, which we did. And then we actually did find more remains where we were burying that were scattered as well. So his theory that the whole site was covered, you know, was that was absolutely correct. So there's all these kind of unprecedented ethical challenges that we had to navigate um, and that any archaeologist working on these sites will have to navigate. Um, um, but we, you know, we just tried our very best to, to make sure that we were not going to be disturbing actual graves and that once remains were found, that they were treated with with the, obviously the respect that they deserved in accordance with the rabbinical advice. And so when you did this, what, what did you find? Um, you know, what what evidence was there of the gas chambers? Um, so, I mean, as soon as we really started to take off the, you know, the top layer of earth, it was what was so surprising, given the narrative about Treblinka was that we, we encountered objects and parts of the gas chamber structure straight away. Um, so there were tiles um, that we, we came across, both orange and yellow ones, which had um, the manufacturing logo of a company called Jabulski and Lang on the bottom um, and a star, which um, was their company logo. Um, we found that out after after the excavations. Um, and these um, these tiles had been on the floor and the walls of the gas chamber. And we have lots of vivid descriptions by um, survivors who did see inside about these terracotta tiles, orange tiles, yellow tiles. Um, and then we we found pers- uh, personal objects as well. So um, we had items of jewellery, including a rose-shaped brooch, um, and a very small gold pendant, which we didn't expect to find there because people had their belongings taken from them in the reception camp area. Um, but um, obviously, you know, we do also know that people tried to smuggle items into the camp um, and hold on to them. Uh, we also, of course, know that, that um, you know, that the, the members of the Sonder Commando, the members of the SS, the Travniki men were taking items as well um from the from the huge piles that were supposed to be sent back to Germany um but it was still a surprise that you know it was a surprise to see those items there and it really gave us a very stark reminder of the individuals who'd passed through that that building um and being killed um we found lots of remains that structural debris so lots of bricks um roof tiles um lots of plaster work from the from the walls of the building and then eventually um, we, we actually found part of the intact foundation of the structure. Um, and it, that was that was buried um, at about 85 centimetres, you know, below the surface that we started to find the actual kind of, you know, the real in situ foundations. Um, and that's because the Germans had covered over um, the whole area with the sandbanks that were around the areas of the camp to try and hide the nature of their crimes. Um, and so that had effectively sealed this building, um, you know, for, for us to find more than 70 years later. Um, so that, that, that was quite, um, you know, remarkable. Um, as I say, we also presumably found... they were too lazy to actually they're not going to they're not going to dig up the foundations of the building. You know, I mean, like, it, yeah, it's, it's I mean, not, they... as you say, the narrative that these sites are completely destroyed 
is not is not necessarily accurate because you know the the, the Germans and Nazis were were people and they were probably too lazy in a hurry to literally excavate foundations that are buried in the ground. Sure, yeah. I mean, and of course, we could see the efforts that they'd gone to to try and cover everything up. I mean, as I say, we, all this material was highly fragmented and damaged, and you could see that these buildings had really been, you know, kind of knocked about to try and crush them. But they had these huge sandbanks, which they'd built for concealment anyway, to stop people arriving in the transport, seeing into the death camp area. So, you know, why not why not use that? It's, a, you know, it, it's very common in, in, you know, the sort of field of criminal profiling that, that um, you know, we, we know that basically the perpetrators will take the, the path, path of least effort. Um, right. And so they had all this material, so they could just they could just kind of push that all over the top. That said, for the new gas chambers, which was the bigger of the two buildings in which many more people were killed, they actually really do appear to have tried to strip out um, the remains of that structure because there we didn't find any in situ foundations. Um, we actually just found um, like post holes, which were probably like the, the building itself because of the sand had to be built on kind of like almost like stilts um, to keep the building, the foundations anchored. And so we found those traces and we found kind of, you know, the soil had been stained, if you like, so it like changed um, the, the texture and everything where the, where the foundations had been infilled. So we could see right. the outline shape of where the building was, but not the actual remnants of the building itself. So it's interesting to see that there was a lot more effort invested into destroying that structure versus the smaller um, gas chambers, which had actually kind of fallen out of use by the time the camp closed anyway. Yeah, so I mean, what do we learn from, what what sort of do we know now about Treblinka perhaps that we didn't know before you started doing uh, archaeological investigations of it? Uh, well, I think um, there's, there's different. I mean, some of the things you've mentioned already, but yeah, yeah. I mean, in a broader sense, I mean, I think, I think, you know, th- there's obviously the things that we now know that challenge that well-established narrative um, that you know that the, the Nazis didn't hide all the traces of their crimes, um, that the, the the those structures are still there. Um, even you know, for example, the the idea that all the victims were cremated some of the the scattered remains that we found in the traces of, of the gas chambers, you know, weren't cremated at all. And some were, but they weren't, you know, they were still identifiable as human remains. And there's often this kind of assumption that they somehow managed to eradicate all the traces of the people, you know, in, in, in name and in, in a bodily sense. And, and actually, so the work plays a really, for me, one of the really important things is that, you know, it disproves that, it, that people can't commit crimes and eradicate all the traces and and I think that's a really important message um you know that people need to hear and also I think people tend to think of the you know the Nazis as sort of you know these kind of superhumans who were able to carry out these industrialized crimes and hide everything that they did and you know that that gives them a form of credit that actually is completely unjust because they didn't they were people like everybody else and actually probably what's more scary about Treblinka is that at times, it was total chaos. Um, and they didn't anticipate, particularly in the first phase, having to handle that amount of people. And so, you know, they they managed to kill that many people by actually being quite, you know, bad at what they were doing and inefficient at it. And and so that's terrifying when you, when you actually think that there was a sort of more primitive, much, you know... Well, is, is it... I want to make... 
I think I'm correct, right? Because wasn't um, a guy named Ermfred Eberl the first Commandant Treblinka who Franz Stangl then relieves? Yes. Um, and then, but when 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 he first gets there, as you mentioned, he says it's like chaos, and there's like money like blowing about on the ground, mm-hmm. and it's just like it it, it or Eberl was completely overwhelmed with the task that he was doing. So this, I think it's a good point they're making, you know, that this is not, this is not the sort of surgical, uh, you know, sterile, efficient method, right? Which, yeah. which is also, I think in many ways, the, the, the narrative the Nazis themselves wanted people to believe. Yeah, and sure. even when, even when after the fact, you're listening to their testimony, you know, they're often saying about sort of how efficient this was and how, how you know Jews went calmly to their deaths, et cetera, et cetera, which is all part of this um, myth the Nazis themselves are, are are perpetrating that you know everything went fine and it was just a, a very sort of you know humane in their in their eyes a humane process. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and actually, I mean, Erbel fell victim to his own desire for a, a sort of clinical efficient system because he actually he wanted to try and impress so much. He wanted to try and kill as many people as possible. And he just clearly hadn't thought about what that meant in terms of the number of bodies that he would have to handle. And so then everything just fell into chaos. And, um, you know, he he was a doctor and he was part of the, the T4 euthanasia program. And he, he was commended for his work in that area. And he tried to implement the same approach and it just, it didn't work. Um, and... So, you know, again, you, you end up with the, the Germans then having to go back. Well, not that they actually ever, this is another thing about Treblinka, they never actually abandoned the other methods of killing they'd been using. All the way through the camp's period of operation, they were still carrying out mass shootings. They were torturing people. They were, you know, coming up with these horrible sport-like activities to enable them to murder victims in in groups and as individuals. And so you know, another thing that my research has definitely shown is this very much interpersonal violence that was still happening at Treblinka. Um, And it's even though the camps were set up, you know, in part to try and give that distance between the people who were carrying out the crimes and their victims, actually many of these SS men and Travniki men chose not to go down that route and kept their own specialist forms of violence that they, you know, tried to perfect and and play out in that landscape. And so I think, you know, what's been really shocking, particularly about the archival research that I've I've done is that level of sadism and that level of um, enjoyment that a lot of these guards got from this process. And it was anything but sanitized. And, you know, there, there was no indirect contact there. It wasn't just a machine pushing people through to murder them. People were killing people very, you know, kind of up close and personal. Um, so I think I think that you know obviously apart from the things I've already mentioned with the with the way that the gas chambers looked the way that they were constructed, um, you know the, the, there's also this this well, sort also of... the the um, even the route mm-hmm. to the gas chambers right in in both Sobibor and Treblinka if I'm if I if I'm remembering correctly you know you can tell by the way the ground is packed like that 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 was where lots of people had walked over. To yeah. get from point A to point B. Yeah, exactly. And and so a lot of what I've been doing is looking at the kind of spatiality of the camp and the where people were sent based on 
Um, I mean, we know some of this from witness testimonies already that, for example, the old and the and the, the sick and children in particular weren't taken to the gas chambers at all. Um, but, you know, I found maps created by Travniki men where they've said, uh, these, are, these are the guards that helped the SS, um, that they, you know, that they stood in a certain position. And, and this is where, you know, we would shoot victims who were, were running from one part of the camp to another. Um, or this is where, you know, we would, we would beat people or um, this is where we'd shoot people people from the watchtowers or we you know and so they actually create they almost create their own like spatial maps of the camp and and the camp was very much designed to allow this kind of flow of people towards the gas chambers but also there were kind of points at which people split off um and therefore their experiences of the camp were also um very different um and i've also looked a lot at the reception camp area and the kind of dynamics between the work with the the very small number of, of jews who were kept behind to work there um and their accounts of the objects that they were finding. And I've also used that as a kind of way of, of really tapping into the biographies of individual victims because sometimes from their accounts and also from some of the objects that were found after the war, um, you can actually identify individuals. And obviously the whole purpose of Treblinka was completely to eradicate people and, and, and mean that individuals you know, became an anonymous mass. And so looking at objects and kind of looking at the materiality of the camp has really enabled me to kind of really reverse that a little bit and actually try and tell some of those those individual stories um, of, of, you know, those people's lives before Treblinka as well. Yeah, I mean, like, this is one of those places where I have sort of this unreasonable desire to see sort of a full a full excavation of, for example, the reception camp, you know, it, it, to identify, I would love to see a site where, where you can literally see, like if, if you go to Treblinka too, where, you know, many of the, the foundations are still there and you can sort of get a sense of where things are. It would be amazing if you could do that, um, you know, in the reception camp, obviously, you know, in light of all the considerations for, you know, um, ethical, uh, excavations those kinds of things Uh, because i suspect that that as you mentioned there are lots of things to find um to unearth to in a certain sense bring back to life um from the victims uh, as well um but to do a massive shift uh, because i know we're running a little bit uh, towards the end of our discussion but i want to also move us all the way back to the channel islands because i know that's another big project um that you've been working on on alderney um, so can you tell us tell us a little about what you're doing there? And I guess for m- many of our, of our listeners may not even be aware that there was essentially a, a concentration camp on the Channel Islands. Yeah. So um, so actually, this is a project that we're kind of um, I, I sort of wrapped up a couple of years ago now. Um, although I am currently sitting on a on a UK um, government review panel that's looking into the number of deaths and the number of people who were sent to the island. Um, but again, this was another case study for my PhD. So at the absolute opposite end of the spectrum from Treblinka, um, I chose to look at Alderney because not many people knew that obviously that the, that um, Nazi persecution um, and crimes of the Holocaust were committed on um, British soil. And um, it was, you know, a tiny site. The island is three and a half miles wide, uh, sorry, three and a half miles long by one and a half miles wide. Um, and yet it had more than 20 camps on it, my research found out. Um, so it was reasonably well known, um, you know, that, that um, there, were, there were four named camps on the island um, and that um, two of them actually, were the, one, one of them was, was um, 
completely ruled by the SS and then um, another one, um, the SS, um, were part of the administration of that camp um, in 1943. So there was some knowledge about this amongst certain circles, but I wouldn't say that it was very well known amongst even the British population that that these camps were, were built on the island. And so initially the reason that these camps were put there was because um, Alderney formed part of the Atlantic Wall. And so um, an organisation called Organisation Todd were responsible for shipping workers to the Channel Islands, including Alderney. And then these workers had to build fortifications, so bunkers, trench systems, anti-aircraft installations, for example. Um, and they were subject to terrible living and working conditions, um, they were kept in camps like just the same, you know, literally the same design, same you know kind of idea, same administration as you would find elsewhere on mainland Europe. Um, and then, as I say, in, in 1943, the SS came in and brought with it a brigade of prisoners as well. So these um, these these sites were largely forgotten, um, you know, after after the war, um, and also you know demolished the huts the prefabricated huts were taken down um there were some foundations kind of remains of fence posts and things that were there but um it was a very difficult history um for for both the local islanders to um deal with but also the british government because the idea that the nazis had been on you know british soil and that they built these kinds of camps including these around by the ss it just didn't chime with the idea that, that Britain, you know, had won the war and they were the victors and not the victims. Um, and so actually, apart from a few um, investigations that did take place in the immediate post-war period, there was largely attempts to kind of cover up what happened um, and, and not for that not to be well known. So my project was really about trying to look at these sites to find the remains of the camps um, and to also identify um and examine the grave sites that we knew about, but also potentially additional unmarked graves on the island as well. And so how many people were in these camps? How many potentially died there as well? And who are who are the people that were that were sent out there? Um, so in the first instance, the organization Todd Workers um, were really like there, there was a real mixture. So in the very first phase, they were people who were coming from mainly from Western Europe. Um, so we we have um, Dutch prisoners. These are all forced laborers. I'm assuming. These are all forced laborers. Yeah. yeah. So they're coming from from the Netherlands, coming from Germany, um, from Belgium. There's a, grid, a big group of Spaniards who were sent um over as well who'd been captured by the the germans so um and then also some local channel islanders as well um some of whom you know there's a very weird line blurred line between who you know volunteers versus forced um forced laborers but some people were genuinely volunteers who went there responded to job adverts and the like and then others were were forced laborers because their only choice was to to go or um, obviously face um, the alternative, which in many cases was death. And that was particularly true for Eastern European workers. Um, so from about February 1942 onwards, you see huge contingents of, of people from Poland, Russia, Ukraine, uh, Belarus, Georgia, being, being essentially recruited um, and, and sent to Alderney. Um, so many of them had, set, had spent time in other camps elsewhere in France or Germany um, or their own countries even before. Um, but they were they were sent there often, as I say, as an alternative to being to being killed. 
Um, the SS prisoners were um, a group called Bow Brigade One. And these were prisoners that had been um, working. Again, they, they'd been subject to um, undertaking forced laborers, but they were they were actually really classified as more as slave laborers or even less than slave laborers um, because they didn't they didn't get paid. They didn't have any ability to you know take any holiday time to leave the camps. They didn't have any time. Um, you know, they just didn't have any rights. They didn't have any basic human rights. They had to do everything, obviously, that their overseers um, said that they had to do. And actually, that was true of a lot of the forced laborers as well. Um, you know, they, 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 there's often a distinction made between the ones who were under the governance of the SS and the OT, but actually, a lot of the ones under the OT were treated just as badly. Um, there was also a group of French Jews who were sent to, to the island as well. Um, some earlier in the war, but then particularly in 1943, when Drancy camp was um, um, being altered and lots of the of lots of the, the French, uh, well, they were called French Jews, but actually a lot of them just happened to be Jewish in and France. in France at the yeah. time. Um, but so uh, you get a lot of people obviously coming by via France. So, um, yeah, so a real mixture, really. So there are up to 30 nationalities of people um, who were sent there. Um, we don't know the exact number. Um, most scholarly studies have placed the number somewhere around about 7,000 people um, who were sent there, um, you know, and, and that research is ongoing. Um, you know, as new archives open up, we're, we're constantly finding new information. Um, officially, um, there was just less than 400 people who were buried in two cemeteries on the island. Um, but... Um, you know, my most recent research and research by others has put the figure somewhere around about 700. Um, but again, as part of the review, you know, we're reevaluating that. We are finding a few more names. Um, and, it, you know, we know, even though we haven't got that, that's how many people we can name. So that's kind of a minimum, a minimum right. number. Um, or we've got, you know, we've got death certificates for them. We've got a burial site for them. Someone saw their body and said that they were definitely, you know, had been killed. But we know we have got lots of witness testimonies that talk about large shooting actions that were taking place in and around the concentration camp silt. Um, we have other, you know, um, accounts of, of people dying in, you know, huge typhus outbreaks or because they've been beaten. So we know that number is higher, um, but, you know, it's, it's obviously, so it's an ongoing process to try and see if we can actually identify individuals um, as uh, who actually did perish there. Unfortunately, and again, so, because those investigations, I mean, they, there were investigations after the war, but because those investigations ultimately were handed over to the Soviet Union, who didn't really carry on with those investigations, a lot of evidence was lost. Um, so I, I think that it's very difficult now to paint a detailed picture in the absence of a lot of evidence. So what have you found and and what are you allowed to do? Because it's interesting... It's almost like, you know, the, the fact that we know there were French Jews there um, adds an additional level of constraint, perhaps, that wouldn't have existed if we could be, you know, certain that there weren't Jewish victims there um, in terms of what you can do and what you can't do. Yeah. So in Alderney, actually, I mean, one of the reasons I, I used the, the non-invasive methodology for a couple of reasons. One is because I knew that, that obviously French Jews um, and, and Jews from other parts of Europe were sent to Alderney. Um, and there were Jewish burials that took place within the cemetery. 
um, on, on G Common that were, were marked and actually they'd been exhumed after the war. Um, but, but obviously the, the you know, the, particularly the very beginning of the project, like it was, it was unclear as to what extent, um, those individuals had been killed, but also because the history was so sensitive and difficult, um, you know, there was a lot of people who, who saw excavation of those sites as, as physically and metaphorically digging up a very difficult past. And so actually the non-invasive methods, you know, were, were welcomed more. Um, you know, I've never been given permission to excavate on Alderney. Um, in in you know in in the camp areas you know because it's just too sensitive um you know it's still it's still very painful still a very painful history and so actually again i use the same methods um so i've i was able to basically find the remnants of of most of the structures within silt concentration camp and also norderney which was an ot and then later a concentration camp um so we could create very detailed maps of what those sites look like at different periods in their history um the same with many of the other the other camps um we were able to use a lot of aerial photography there are literally thousands of aerial photographs of alderney um because the um when when the allies were taking imagery they started the film over the channel islands and then they finished the film off on the way back so you have these images which even if they weren't deliberately collected are very very useful um and so um we were able to you know often when you talk about camps people produce one map and then that's it but we were able to build a very detailed sort of view of how these camps evolved over time and how that corresponded to the movement of the different prisoner groups to the island um i was also able to survey the the cemetery on longy common um as i say there were exhumations in the 1960s that saw a lot of the bodies of the victims removed um but there were rumors in the in the in the forties and after that there was a mass grave or maybe even several mass graves in the cemetery and in its environs. Um, and so we did geophysical non-invasive survey in that area and we used aerial reconnaissance imagery and we found several areas within and outside of the parameters of the cemetery that suggest that there are additional burials still there that um, probably were not exhumed um, in the 1960s or at any other time. And, um, looking at death certificates and the burial registries and the archaeological data combined uh, really demonstrated that the Nazis essentially created a show cemetery on Longy Common. They put up a fence, you know, some crosses, made it look like they were burying individual victims in an orderly fashion. But in reality, that was a way for them to hide a higher number of deaths. Um, and prisoner numbers were recycled so that when someone died, their number was given to somebody else. So it didn't look like you know, another victim passed, had, had perished. And, um, it, you know, they, they, they tried all sorts of other things, like they took the crosses down at certain points, put them back up again, changed the names on them. Um, they didn't create death certificates for everyone. So it was a completely, again, chaotic, completely chaotic system, completely goes against the, the kind of view of this organised approach. Um, and it showed, again, that there were very much conscious efforts to, to hide the crimes that, that were perpetrated. Um, and I looked a lot at the post-war investigations that took place um, and used a lot of archival material as well as that infield investigation to really try and retell the history of the occupation through this kind of, um, you know, the, through the physical evidence that it, it left behind, really. And so I think, I think one of the things that's been really interesting about this conversation is the way that history, archaeology, and memory connect. Um, because 
ultimately when you do when you do an archaeological investigation you identify something or you unearth something either metaphorically or physically and then we're faced with the question of what what do we do with it um you know what do we do with that knowledge what do we do with the fact that we know that this particular space is a mass grave for example mm-hmm. um so is there is there a, a memorial now um, on Alderney? You know, is there an, is there an attempt to to now mark the places that you've discovered, or do they only remain discovered in sort of the the scholarly world of of you know your work and 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 a map that you've created? But in the sense of if, if someone visits, you know, do we? Because I know even at, even at Treblinka today, when you visit Treblinka. The landscape is just as it would have been, I guess, what in the '60s when they built, when they put the stones in and the the monolith and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You don't, with the exception of the, the the tube, the path to the gas chambers, and and the and the, the the arrival ramp, which is identified by sort of an artistic um, railroad track. Mm-hmm. Even then, there's really no marking of the places that you've actually found that it would be really useful to sort of say like here is the gas chamber. Yeah, sure. I mean, in, it's really interesting, actually, to compare this to the work that we've done, um, you know, sort of um, trying to find killing sites, uh, you know, in Ukraine or um, outside of the camps in in Poland, because often when you find an individual mass grave in a forest somewhere, then there will often be that drive to create a memorial. And there are lots of organisations that are doing incredible work to actually make this happen, who have then subsequently done that when we found traces of, of these sites there's often debates um, at sites like Treblinka you know that the monument itself is an incredible monument it's a registered monument it's incredibly evocative um, you know but it, it doesn't it doesn't really convey what happened there but as, as a cemetery you know which Treblinka is often also considered to be a cemetery you know it's, it's an incredibly powerful memorial and so actually any kind of interventions to uncover the traces, you know, of, of those um, foundations, for example, or um, to, to sort of mark certain areas would consider be are considered to sort of interfere with that aesthetic of that memorial. Right. So there have been some interesting debates about whether or not that should happen. Um, and of course, and the, in- the, the ultimate example of this is Belzig, where mm-hmm. they've essentially paved you know, the entire site and covered it with, I mean, it's, 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 it's more or less uninterpretable as an historic location with the exception of sort of that, that dug in path, which is supposed to represent the path, you know, to the gas chambers, but otherwise, you know, it's, it's all memorial. It's all commemoration, you know, it's, it's, there's no sort of historical, yeah, and that's kind of, I guess, the sort of sign of the of those sorts of times in terms of there's a whole whole history there, obviously, to the yeah. development of memorials yeah. and and um, you know, and I also think because they genuinely thought at Treblinka like that there would be nothing, there is nothing to see, then obviously I had to go for quite a different approach. Although ironically, they were finding remains whilst they were digging the, you know, to to install the memorial, but that's. I mean, that's a that's a whole other <laughs> a whole other story, but um, but yeah, and then obviously like with places like on Alderney, I mean there were some there were some memorials that were erected, um, you know, memorial plaques that were erected um, in some of these locations, usually by private individuals, so that, that there is um, there is a memorial called the Hammond Memorial, which was erected by a family at the top of the of the road 
down to where you go down to where Norderney camp was. Um, it doesn't specifically reference that that was the location of the camp, but it does commemorate the different nationalities of the victims. Um, and it's silt on one of the surviving gateposts. There is a plaque that was put there in 2008 by one of the former inmates. Um, and there's another small plaque on the side of the Alderney Museum, which shows the locations of the four named camps. So there were some memorials um, already uh, on the island that have been the focus of, of some commemorative efforts by local people, because there have obviously been lots of local people who have been interested in this history and have tried to keep that memory alive for a long time. Um, but there isn't there isn't um, currently, you know, an extensive network of memorial markers that show exactly what was there. Um, there have been some um, information boards that have recently been erected on Longy Common and the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance um, and the uh, and and um, the UK delegation to that, um, which is headed up by um, um, Lord Eric Pickles, have been working with the states of Alderney. Um, and resulting from that, there have been some new information boards that have been erected. Um, but currently, there you know most of these sites are not marked. And I mean, I've only mentioned the camps of which I said there are, there are more than twenty. Um, obviously, there's these burial sites, but then there's also all the fortifications which were the products of, of forced and slave labor. Um, and some of them are, you know, are marked and there are some information panels in there. Um, but most of them aren't. A lot of them are in private ownership. Um, and so the, yeah, there, there, there isn't, for visitors today, it's, it's still quite difficult um, to, to actually see that. And so, as I say, at different sites for different reasons, it's still the case that often those archaeological findings are not necessarily then translated into the memorials um you know or, or or educational resources or or markers so i do a lot to try and make sure that that does happen um and at treblinka i contributed to the permanent exhibition um that is is there currently and you can see the objects from from the excavations for example um but sometimes for various reasons it is very difficult actually to, to take that material and actually have it accepted in any arena other than an academic one so um so that's an ongoing an ongoing sort of personal pursuit of mine is to try and make sure that we, we share the information about the work that we've done more widely than just academic circles because actually it's not academics i mean of course academics are interested um but it's the families of the victims the descendants of the victims who want to know this information and it's the visitors to the site who want to know and so so yeah i'm very much committed to trying to make sure that we we do move um beyond just those those academic circles yeah this is one of those things i mean i, I agree this is one of those things that i am i'm super interested in you know spatiality because when we visit any of these places what the first thing we want to know is where am i standing what am i looking what you know where am i in relation to other things mm -hmm. you know i mean it's it's all spatial it's all relative um okay so before we close um really quickly two questions um one is just what are you working on now what's the what's the latest project um, yeah, so I've just actually started a, a really large project, um, which is examining um, the site of Travniki. So you've heard me mention the word Travniki a few times, I think, in the in the last um, hour or so. But um, this is the place where the, the Travniki men, the men who were helping uh, the SS run the camps and round up Jews outside of the camps, where they were trained um, and where obviously, of course, a lot of them lived in the process of that training and and in the course of their work and then also it was a site for jews a jewish um, forced labor camp um, and that story is often 
overshadowed by the fact that it was this this training facility and the site itself is often overshadowed by the stories of the men who were who were housed there um and so actually i really wanted to do a place-based study because it enables us to really look at this kind of uh juxtaposition of the of you know of, of these these men who became perpetrators of the holocaust who actually often were first victims of of uh, nazi persecution and then the victims um, of the Holocaust whose stories have been completely um, overshadowed. Um, and so I'm, I'm taking a team in April to do field work at Travniki, and we are going to be um, continuing to map the site um, and we're creating a very detailed 3D model of the camp, which we've already, we've already worked on um, as part of a smaller pilot project. And we'll be creating a digital open access book in which you'll be able to actually view full testimonies the, explore the 3D model to see what the site looks like now. Um, you'll be able to look at maps and plans and, and all of that. We, we really wanted to kind of bring the source material to life um, in a way that you can't necessarily do in a traditional book. Um, and the idea is that it'll be a new spatial, historical and archaeological account of life in Travniki. And it will include a lot of the biographies of the of the individual victims. And our campaign this um, field season is really to try and locate some of the buildings that were demolished but most importantly the mass graves that were built in and uh, sorry that were dug in and around the camp um because we know this was also used as, as a killing site a burial location and then also somewhere to dispose of the ashes and, and bodies of victims killed elsewhere so the project is called travniki nexus of the final solution because actually this was where you know really the facilitation of the the final solution the nazi persecution of jews took place um, and it's also a Holocaust site in its in its own right from you know 1941 through to 1944. So that's yeah, I mean, the next I've, couple of years. I have a connection there too because the um, some of the first guards for the Anofska camp that I just finished a project on came from Travniki, yeah. along with their trainers. Like the the guy, one of the guys, one of the SS men, um, worked at Travniki, and then he literally was transferred with his students, I guess. Um, to Yanovska. And of course, mm-hmm. as you point out, Travniki is not just a training facility. There's actually a sort of concentration camp next door as part of it. And the, the guards were actually, at least some of the testimonies from that I've come across, you know, the guards sort of final exam was they had to go into the camp and often kill people yeah. as part of their sort of to prove that they were ready to be a, a guard. Um, Caroline, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, You're I think very welcome. it's been a fascinating discussion. Um, I always want to close with our, with our question, which is um, if you could suggest one book on the Holocaust um, that you found particularly meaningful, enlightening, um, useful, what would it be? Um, so actually this is a, this is a book that, um, really kind of inspired me to start my work. I mean, um, if you listen to many of my lectures, you probably heard me say this many times before, but I think it's a really powerful book for, for many reasons. So it's called From the Heart of Hell, uh, Manuscripts of a Sonderkommando Prisoner Found in Auschwitz. So this is actually a later publication of the earlier version of the book, um, which I actually first discovered in the university library when I was um, designing, you know, thinking about my master's topic. And this is letter, these are letters um, that were written uh, by Jewish workers who were kept alive to help with 
the various processes connected to the killings in Auschwitz-Birkenau. And one in particular, Zalman Grodowski, um, he wrote a letter and, and basically they, these men, they buried them in the ground. Um, and one of the, the letters that he wrote, he, he basically pleaded, um, you know, with future generations to dig the earth to find the traces of the of the victims who were murdered and to tell the world about what had happened um and so you know he actually uses this kind of phrase like you know to to dig for the traces of millions of men who were murdered and so as an archaeologist that really like you know that that struck a chord with me um and as you've seen you know I, i didn't necessarily go down the path of digging all the time um but certainly that realization that victims at the time wanted future generations to find the traces of these crimes so that they wouldn't be forgotten, you know, really spoke to me. And I think as, you know, as a powerful piece of testimony, these letters give an incredible insight into into what life was like in Auschwitz-Birkenau. Um, and as acts of resistance, they give, uh, you know, an incredible insight into, into the risks that people were prepared to take in order to ensure that these crimes were forgotten. And therefore, they remind us why we must never forget them. Um, and also, I think, you know, I, I know from my other research, there were there were, you know, thousands, it's hard to put a number on it, but of people who were doing the same thing in other camps, and those those letters have never been found. Um, and so it also kind of gives inspiration to, you know, as I say, to sort of start looking at other sites and trying to find more information about them as well. So um, it's published by the State Museum of Auschwitz-Birkenau. Um, and uh, as, as, as I say, as a newer edition, um, and it's available on their website um, if, if anybody is interested in following. Yeah, I mean, that. That, and that's a great and that's a great suggestion because it, it's sort of archaeology. It's 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 a, it's archaeology inception, right? Because it's mm-hmm. it's both metaphorical and actual. And like yeah. you know, his his actual manuscripts, as you point out, are dug up because he yeah. buried them, and so they're, yeah. it, that that works. It works sort of on all levels. Um, Caroline, so thank you so yeah. much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks so much, Waitman. Right. Um, and for everyone else, um, again, thanks for listening. Um, if you have a chance, uh, it would be great if you could go on um, Apple or Spotify, give us a rating, give us a comment. Um, I will put links to uh, Caroline's work um, on the on the show notes, as always, along with the, a link to the reading list so you can um, catch up with not only the books that she's recommended, um, but also the books of our other guests.